This is Africa Digest. A very good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyane. I'm driving the show with Amanda Machaka on news, Busani Matebula on economics, and Tabison Dema on sports. Let's take a look at what's coming up this hour. Countdown continues in South Sudan for the eagerly awaited return of rebel leader Rick Macha. Doctors Without Borders kickstarts a large vaccination campaign against cholera in Zambia. In economics, the number of tourists visiting Mauritius rises 12.5% in the first quarter of this year. And in sports, Kenyan parliament resumes sitting in readiness for the eventual processing of the crucial anti-doping bill. All those and more coming up this hour. But first, let's get the news. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Asanda. Good evening. A mysterious disease has claimed the lives of at least 23 infants in Kenya's Nakuru and Baringo counties in the past four weeks. Area Senator James Mungai has since called for the intervention of the Ministry of Health to address the issue. The disease, which is exhibiting symptoms such as high fever, coughing, body weakness and sweating, was initially thought to be viral pneumonia, but tests by the Kenya Medical Research Institute were negative. Mungai says at least 215 cases have so far been confirmed, with babies aged between one day and 11 months being the most affected. The International Medical Humanitarian Agency Doctors Without Borders has kick-started a large vaccination campaign against cholera in Zambia's capital, Lusaka. The campaign targets over half a million people. The initiative comes as the country battles an outbreak of the waterborne disease, which has killed about 12 people and infected over 600 others. Bori Lagrange is Director of Communications at MSF. The reason why the vaccination campaign was started is it's the first time in uh, nearly six years since the last outbreak of cholera in Lusaka. And so we know that when people are living in cholera endemic areas, then they develop a degree of immunity to cholera. So so much time has passed since the last cholera outbreak. The ability of people in the community to resist cholera infection is very low. Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for a car bomb attack at the local government headquarters in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. A government official says it was a car bomb parked at a restaurant behind the headquarters. The explosion killed three people and injured five others. 
The International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent has launched an appeal to assist families affected by multiple emergencies in Burundi. Approximately 250,000 people have fled the East African nation since political unrest erupted in April 2015. The thousands of families who have remained have had to endure the effects of a very strong El Nino, which brought extensive rains and flooding to 15 out of 18 provinces. IFRC in Eastern Africa, Catherine Gearing, rather chair of IFRC in Eastern Africa, Catherine Gearing elaborates. There really does continue to be a significant concern for the people of Burundi. Obviously there's been flooding there, so they've been responding to the impact of these floods. And with ongoing violence, it continues to be of serious concern for the Red Cross movement. So uh, last March, with the pre-election violence, this has created a significant civil unrest within the country and it's resulted in a huge number of people fleeing the country for safety in in neighbouring countries and that includes into Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda with over 25,000 people having fled the country. Former South African President Abombeki says the recent Constitutional Court judgment on Gandla is outstanding in outlining the issues relating to the functioning of the country's constitutional democracy. Mbeki also says political parties must regularly assess whether the elected president is carrying out his constitutional responsibilities. He was commenting in his latest public letter on political developments. Busichi Mombe reports. Former President Tabombeki's letter, while mentioning calls for President Jacob Zuma to step down, does not give an opinion on the matter. Instead, he says political parties in parliament must ensure that the person elected as president is able, capable and committed to discharging the important duties of the office. With regards to parliament, Mbegi says political parties must also ensure their MPs are inducted to understand their oversight role over the executive and also their responsibility to serve all South Africans above party loyalty. He also says the speaker must ensure that parliament implements all decisions handed down by the courts. Meanwhile, the Tabombeki Foundation has denied that former President Tabombeki has introduced the Gupta family to President Jacob Zuma. That's the latest news. Thank you, Amanda, for that news update. Remember, you're listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa. Good evening to you if you've just joined us. My name is Asanda Matsaunyane. On to the news. A countdown continues in South Sudan for the eagerly awaited return home of the country's rebel leader, Rik Macha. Macha is expected to land in the capital, Juba, on the 18th of this month from Addis Ababa, the capital of neighboring Ethiopia. James Shimanyula reports. More than 12 million people of South Sudan are eagerly waiting for the homecoming of rebel leader Riek Machar this coming Monday to take up his position of the vice president in the country's new transitional government of national unity to be led by President Salva Kiir. Previous plans by Machar to return home from his bush headquarters in the northern part of Africa's newest nation failed seven times after the authorities in Juba failed to brief him on the security situation in the capital, Juba. Speaking from his headquarters on the most important task he plans to undertake once he lands in Juba 
from Addis Ababa, the capital of neighboring Ethiopia, Machar had this to say. The most important thing once I arrive Juba is to ensure that the security situation becomes normal. The war which is being fought against our troops by the government in Equatoria and in Bahragizal should cease immediately because it would be very upset for such activities to continue. Equatoria and Bahar El Ghazal are two of South Sudan's 28 regions. Equatoria is west of the country while Bahar El Ghazal is in the northern part of South Sudan. Alluding to the next move he plans to take once he's back home, South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar said. Once this is over, we turn our heads and our minds to the economy. Meanwhile, ensuring that all the troops are put in cantonment all over the country. With my arrival, I know that there are lots of expectations. People need food. We should ask the humanitarian agencies to help us stabilize the country by providing humanitarian food while we are handling the other issues. Once they have food, once they have preparations to cultivate, things would be normal. The security elements are being flown to Juba. Thanks for the Troika, that's the US, UK, and Norway. Among them are 502 police, joint integrated police. So they will join with their brothers from the other side so that they take over the security of Juba. And the sooner we bring the rest from our bases in Equatoria in Bahragizal, and they join up, the security of Juba will be now be handed over to them. But with peace coming, those who want South Sudan to rise again will assist. And that was South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar, whose return home on the 18th of this month is eagerly awaited by the people of Africa's newest nation. Meanwhile, Rebecca Nyandeng, the wife of South Sudan founding father, the late Johnny Garang, asserts briefly that once the new transitional government is in place in South Sudan, the country's parliament will never be the same again. Parliament will not be a one-man show, will not be rubber stamp, and the cabinet people will sit down and tackle the issues which brought the problems. Rebecca Nyandeng, wife of the late founding father of South Sudan, Johnny Garang. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The Zimbabwean government through parliament has begun collecting views regarding how public funds should be secured. Public hearings on Special Economic Zones Bill and Public Finance Management Amendment Bill started in Harare Monday, although the attendance was very low. The public hearings come at a time when Zimbabweans, including President Robert Mugabe, are puzzled over the mysterious disappearance of 15 billion U.S. dollars revenue from the diamond mining sector. Although authorities say the two bills, if enacted into law, would help in the reduction of corruption in the country, civil society says it remains to be seen if their views would be considered. Transparency International 2015 Index on Corruption revealed Zimbabwe is ranked 150 out of 168 countries, mainly in the public sector and police. Simon Muchemwa reports from Harare. At a time when Zimbabweans are battling to get answers, 
regarding the mysterious disappearance of 15 billion US dollars from the diamond mining sector, a draft bill to keep theft of public funds and corruption is being drafted. The Special Economic Zones Bill and Public Finance Management Amendment Bill seek to explore new investment policies as well as harness new ways of securing public funds. Entities operating under the new Special Economic Zones shall be exempted from enforcing the controversial Indigenization and Economic Empowerment Act, while the finance minister shall be empowered to control all public funds in the country. However, the first public hearings in Harare were poorly attended, complained Jokania Maopa of the Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Union. Yes, the low attendance probably we feel that this uh, has been deliberate because most of the workers, if you can say, this publication, this, the message was sent out on Friday. Uh, most of the workers have already left their workstations, so they could not make arrangements to come here since it's Monday morning. They first report to their work, to their workstations. So we feel that this was a deliberate move to avoid workers to contribute meaningfully to this discussion. We have already sent messages to our various uh, structures around the country and uh, the timetable. So we expect that in the next meetings the attendance will be a bit high because we've already sent that message to our structures. But we've also made uh, a resolution that will approach our leadership so that they will make a written submission. However, Zimbabwean opposition legislator Eddie Cross and a member of the Portfolio Committee on Finance disagreed. Well, I didn't think it was too bad this morning. We, you see, we had, we had to put in extra chairs, so we didn't expect that many people. These are highly technical matters. Um, I think I was a bit disappointed by the fact that the major organizations, CZI, ZNCC, were not here, and the Chamber of Mines were not here, and we expected them. And I think that's disappointing because they are likely to be the major beneficiaries of, of particularly of the Special Economic Zones uh, meeting. According to Eddie Cross, the new finance bills empowers the finance minister to have an oversight role of all public funds being handled by all government ministries to avoid corruption and looting. The amendments are designed to, con- to give greater control to the Ministry of Finance for the, of the funds. Now, the funds are administered outside the budget. So most ministries have funds. Um, the, court, the courts, for example, they have a fund for fines. The police have a, a, a fund for fines and other, other sources of income. About $800 million went through those special funds last year. And uh, the minister is seeking to increase his control over those funds. Whereas the Special Economic Zones seeks to create zones inside Zimbabwe which will provide special incentives to investors and provide special operating conditions to investors. For example, uh, they'll, be exclu- the, the, they'll be excluded from the Indigenization Act. David Chafika, chairperson of the Portfolio Committee, explained. We have had problems in terms of corporate governance, uh, transparency and uh, corruption. Those issues have been very rampant. I think uh, in Zimbabwe people have complained of corruption. We have set up institutions. If you see, this, there is a mention here of um, uh, the anti-corruption. Uh, uh, commission is mentioned there and the roles, their roles now are being strengthened
strengthened. The roles of, of um, the accounting general is also being strengthened to ensure that there is accountability, there is transparency, and there is ownership as we do business. The government has identified certain flaws and weaknesses in, in the manner uh, the accounting processes were taking place, and that, that is what it seeks to address. The ZCTU representative Jokania Maopam dismissed the process as it excludes members of the public. ZCTU claim the new special economic zones bill strip workers of their right. Uh, it's a bit tricky because uh, we, as I said, we don't even have confidence in these processes. Yes, people might have said their views, people might have said their mind in fair environment, but taking them up as a portfolio committee also is another issue. And uh, our fear is that probably what we have contributed, you might, uh, you might not be surprised to see them not contained in the bill that will also go before the parliament. Surprisingly, Eddie Cross admitted ZCTU claims were justified. Yes, and I think the concern is justified. Uh, and I think this is an important issue uh, because the, you know, the, labor, the, 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 the bill actually provides for exemption from, for firms operating inside the SECs. And uh, this is a dangerous thing uh, because it can mean that it can be exploitation of labor inside the special economic zones. And uh, we've got to obviously watch that. But I hope we'll, I hope we'll pay due attention to that. I don't think we will we'll neglect it when we finally present it in the House. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchema. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You tuned in to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa. Good evening to you if you've just joined us. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. South Africa's premier awards for leadership and innovation in empowerment and transformation, the Oliver Empowerment Awards, will take place on Thursday at Empress Palace, east of Johannesburg. The awards seek to recognize outstanding leaders, individuals or organizations who have exemplified inspiration, innovation, leadership, action for empowerment and transformation, amongst others. More from Ryland Fisher, who's editorial director at Topco Media, organizers of the awards. The Olympic Empowerment Awards um, seek to reward um, people who have gone the extra mile in terms of promoting transformation and empowerment in, in society. This year is very special because we're celebrating the 15th birthday of the awards. So, you know, it's a very special occasion for us. Just um, briefly tell us, how many categories are there for these particular awards? 
we have 15 categories in all, and these categories are, are actually quite, um, you know, vast. They seek to reward um, companies. They seek to, re- to, to reward kind of big corporates, but also up-and-coming um, companies, empowered companies. But they also look at rewarding some government departments who are also doing their bit for empowerment. But then they also look at, at individuals within companies who are going, you know, the extra mile in terms of promoting empowerment. What we're also doing this year, that's very different to previous years, because it's our 15th birthday, we're also honoring legends of empowerment. And so we've looked over the past 15 years at people who have won consistently and people who have just gone the extra mile, and we've decided to honor them also with a special um, award this year. Now, the awards have become synonymous with having renowned keynote speakers. If you could just tell us who is the keynote speaker for this year. Well, this year we will have um, the Minister of Science and Technology, um, uh, Naledi Pando, and we will also have Kanyasili Kuyama, the CEO of BUSA, who will be speaking. I think it is it's quite important. Both, you know, uh, of our speakers have lived empowerment. They've both, you know, made empowerment one of the key and focus areas and especially in the empowerment of women because quite often when we when we talk empowerment we don't realize the important role that women also play in empowerment so i think both of them will will share a very interesting story what us on the night now besides the two speakers you've just alluded to what can people who will be at the award ceremony on thursday look forward to well like i said earlier you know we we celebrating our 15th birthday so the awards will be will be very special. We also, for the first time ever, we we in fact um, rewarding the media personalities. So there's quite a few um, really exciting uh, media personalities that we will be honouring. And then, like I said, we we were honouring the legends of empowerment. And then we we've got a new award, the Vision 2050 Award, which is uh, you know recognising private companies that that have initiatives contributing to the NDP's goals. Overall, I think, you know, the thing about the Oliver Awards is that it's an amazing event where people really come dressed up. It becomes a big kind of, a, a, you know, like a social event, and um, it's a really special event. And what we try to do with the event is to celebrate, okay? So it's not about lots of long speeches and stuff like that, but it's really a celebration of the people who are winning awards on the evening. That was Rayland Fisher, Editorial Director at Topco Media, who are organizers of the Oliver Empowerment Awards, speaking there to Ntlantla Mashangu. Channel Africa will broadcast live from the awards. The International Medical Humanitarian Agency, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has kick-started a large vaccination campaign against cholera in Zambia's capital, Lusaka, targeting over half a million people. This comes as the country battles an outbreak of the waterborne disease, which has killed about 12 people and infected over 600 others. Cholera is considered epi-endemic in Zambia and breaks out during the rainy season due to poor water, hygiene and sanitation in highly populated slums. For more on this, here's Bori Lachrange, Director of Communications at MSF. The reason why the vaccination campaign was started is it's the first time in uh, nearly six years since the last outbreak of cholera in Lusaka. 
And so we know that when people are living in cholera endemic areas, then they develop a degree of immunity to cholera. So, so much time has passed since the last cholera outbreak. The ability of people in the community to resist cholera infection is very low. So people are quite vulnerable. Bori, how important is vaccination as a tool in the fight against a disease like cholera? So a vaccination like this is certainly not the only measure that you can take. So there are other measures too that are very important to stop the spread, and this is providing adequate clean water and sanitation, also to provide cholera treatment centers. And these are things that the Zambian health authorities are trying to do. The idea with a vaccination like this is to reach as many people as possible with uh, a single dose vaccine. And single dose is a cholera vaccine which is delivered orally. So it's very simple to administer and it allows you to work really quickly. Single dose of this vaccine is able to offer people protection for up to six months. From what you've seen so far, is the health system coping with the outbreak? So um, the Ministry of Health is doing everything that it can to deal with the epidemic. Our action here is in support of that. And um, it's the first time ever that a vaccination on this scale is happening. The total number of people across four township areas uh, that will be targeted in the vaccination drive, over 550,000 people. What do you think the role of ordinary citizens is in bringing the outbreak under control? There are many ways to, to try and prevent the infection. People should be washing their hands regularly, but they should be paying attention to any symptoms that they experience. So this is often when people experience symptoms of diarrhea for a few consecutive days. So when people are experiencing dehydration as a consequence. The basic idea with this vaccination is that we should also be informing people about this so that when we reach their neighborhoods, they're familiar with the idea that they can get a vaccine that can provide them some protection from becoming infected. Who else are you working with to carry out the vaccination campaign? So NSF and Dr. Zarabori is collaborating with the Zambian Ministry of Health. So we have a small team of, of NSF staff on the ground. They're working with 19 Ministry of Health health workers. And there's also a, a big number of community volunteers, 1,135 of them, that uh, help us at the vaccination site. We're doing it in very overcrowded, congested slum areas, at least 39 different vaccination sites. So this means that we have to use big quantities of equipment. And the big job really also is to spread the word in the community so that people are aware on which days we will be in certain parts of the city to administer the vaccine. That's Bori Lagrange, Director of Communications at Doctors Without Borders, MSF, on the line from Lusaka, Zambia, to Elizabeth Lidicha. A United Nations event for victims of abuse has heard that states are not doing enough to help the recovery of children and families who fled conflict and experienced torture and other ill treatment. Clinical psychologist Annette Kanelman said in her home country of Sweden, which has welcomed more than 160,000 mainly Syrian refugees this year, many families and children are still in shock after fleeing the war-torn nation. She took part in the event in Geneva last Friday, hosted by the UN Voluntary Fund for Victims of Torture. She told UN Radio's Daniel Johnson that much more research needs to be done and state procedures put in place to prevent torture from affecting successful successive generations, as is the case now. 
I'd say that, first of all, it's damaging on several structural levels. It's, uh, I mean, on a physiological level when it comes to the body and also, very importantly, the brain. So you start changing, whether it's a child or an adult, the very neurological structures that Mr. Barudi was talking about. That will affect your ability to regulate stress from now on, always. Uh, so on a structural level, on several, and it also impacts horizontally and vertically generations and peers. So it affects children individually. It also affects their families, their parents, and it affects society. And the coming children, their upcoming children, I mean the children's children further on down the line, will also be very heavily affected. Usually at our clinic we talk about three generations. So the torture victim and the torture victim's children and that person's children as well. And one of the things that's been said at at today's conference is the need for quick action, quick rehabilitation, quick support for children. Why is it so important to get there quickly? I think it's specifically important when it comes to children, them being growing. I mean, there are futures, so doing that, I mean, we have to save future generations, right? But there's also the plasticity of a child. I mean, they are still in the very physical and mental process of growing, which means that if you don't intervene now, it will affect that development very, very severely. But on the other hand, there's also the ability to heal since you're growing. I mean, wounds heal faster with kids, whether they're physical or indeed mental, because there's a way of an ability and a resilience physically and mentally to redispose, to reorganize the experiences. So very immediate. And then again, there's also the philosophical or human aspect that a child, it's a horrendous thing having happened. So it's just that the response due to the extensive pain should be emergency based. That's Annette Kam Kanemalm, a clinical psychologist from Sweden, talking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's uh, 17.30 exactly Central African time here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa. And it's time for our news headlines with Amanda Machaga. Thank you, Asanda. Good evening. A mysterious disease has claimed the lives of at least 23 infants in Kenya's Nakuru and Baringo counties in the past four weeks. Area Senator James Mungai has since called for the intervention of the Minister of Health to address the issue. Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for a car bomb attack at the local government headquarters in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu. The explosion killed three people and injured five others. And U.S. President Barack Obama says failing to prepare for the aftermath of the ousting of the Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was the worst mistake of his presidency, but that intervening in Libya had been the right choice. Those were news headlines. Thanks, Amanda, for the news update. This is Africa Digest. Good evening to you if you've just joined us. And you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Asanda Mazzaunyani. 
Back to what's making news. The Grand Forest Japan Hospital Limited, a world-class Japanese hospital, has opened its first diagnostic and medical clinic in Kenya. The center, which is based in the country's capital, Nairobi, is expected to provide medical services to Kenyans from all walks of life. To talk to us more about this, we're joined on the line now by Kenneth Otieno, who is the project coordinator at Forest Japan Diagnostic Center in Nairobi. Good evening to you, Kenneth. Uh, good evening. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for making time to chat to us about this new venture. Yes, thank you. The, the first thing I'd like to know is what necessitated the launch of such a clinic and how will Kenya benefit from this? Okay, what necessitated this was the unmet needs in the medical area. As you know that even in, in Kenya for a long time, there are those services we have been seeking in South Africa, mostly the diagnostics. So our, our, our representative thought wise that we should start a medical diagnostic facility at least to bridge the gap of the services which are not there in Kenya. What do you think the challenge is in providing quality health care, the, the bridges that you're mentioning in Kenya, and how will this clinic seek to close that gap? Okay, Some, one of the challenges include the quality of the results which are generated in the diagnostic center. Another challenge is timely reporting, mainly in radiology uh, results. Mm. And another factor is cost. In order to mitigate this, we have thought twice to, inve- to invest in state-of-art equipment which are able to give us repeatable results. Mm-hmm. And in that, we'll endeavor to... To, to get world-class results to our patients. Also, number two, also we want to provide timely reports for diagnostic uh, services, mainly the radiology. As we all know that the, the radiology report sometimes takes long, and in our facility we'll ensure that results are provided within the 30 minutes with the patient has come to our hospital so that they can get early treatment as fast as possible. Another issue is the cost. We, are, we will try to provide the best cost so that we'll benchmark with the government hospitals because most private sector are profit-oriented. But if we benchmark with whatever the, the government public hospitals are providing, I think our cost will be the best. And in terms of treatment, are you targeting certain diseases with your diagnosis? Will you we be specializing in certain diseases? Okay, not any disease as particular will be versatile in nature. So that if it is we are providing diagnostic, it would be if you are coming for CT, you are able to do almost all variety of CT scanning, even if it is X-ray, and even if it is uh, the laboratory, you will be able to do most of the tests. So we are not specific to any particular line. And coming back to the issue of, of uh, costing, making it more affordable to the Kenyan, would you say that the level of support you've received from the country's Ministry of Health and other partners has been uh, you know, of a high degree? We can't complain because mm. at least uh, we have received good uh, support. But the main issue is taxation, which we hope in future our government will be able to reduce tax on medical equipment so that at least to reduce the cost of the equipment per se. Mm -hmm. 
And any other partners yes. involved in the launch of the clinic besides the government? Other partners, we had um, Minister of Foreign Affairs from Japanese Embassy in Kenya. We had JICA representative with us. And also we had our suppliers who were with us during the launch. Mm-hmm. And do you get your funding strictly from the Japanese, uh, since it is a world-class Japanese hospital, uh, or are you also looking at maybe expanding, um, you know, your base from for funding? For now, it is 100% individual funding. It is not from the government. Yeah, and we hope in future we might get other partners so that this this good venture come to fruition. What, what has the response been from, from the general public, the Kenyan, who will be benefiting from this clinic? As per now, we can't gauge. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is when now we have started our ground marketing to see how many people will come and appreciate the kind of services we are providing. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to yeah. leave it there for now. I think we wish you all the best from uh, Channel Africa on this uh, great uh, venture, which is going to be quite... Uh, I'm sure, you know, beneficial to the Kenyan. Yes, it will. And thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure. That's Kenneth Otieno, who is the project coordinator of Forest Forest, uh, Japan Diagnostic Center in Nairobi. They've just launched and opened their first diagnostic and medical clinic in Kenya. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is African Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good evening to you. My name is Asanda Matzaunyani. A fictional account of a Palestinian veterinarian's effort to save his zoo's remaining giraffe by smuggling a companion giraffe from Israel has been told in the movie uh, Giraffe Father. During a screening at the United Nations in New York, the director of the award-winning production, Rani Masala, explained that its title, Girafada, is a cross between giraffe and intifada, or Palestinian uprising. In the film, the son of the veterinarian who has a special bond with two giraffes in the zoo is heartbroken when the male giraffe dies in an air raid. The story is told through the eyes of a 10-year-old depicting what it's like to live in a war zone at that age, as Masala explains. Well, the movie is, um, I mean, it's a real metaphor about the situation of Palestine. It's First, it's taking place in a zoo where animals are in cage. And I'm talking about the giraffe. And the giraffe is the tallest animal in the nature. So it, it sees man from above till down. And um, it also sees at the horizon. And, um, and it's a metaphor also about the relationship between Israeli and Palestinians. Because in the end, like, we have two... I don't want to spoil your end, but uh, I will... <laughs> You have two giraffes that are reunited, coming from both sides of the wall. And so, you know, I have a beautiful imagery about uh, that story, I think. I have to ask you what girafada means. 
Girafada is a contraction between giraffe and intifada because the context of the film is taking place during the second intifada. That's why uh, throughout the film I show the oppression of the occupation in the Palestinian territories and how it affects the population and how, uh, especially through the point of view of a kid. So I try to do my best in the film to always adapt the point of view of a kid so that we picture his everyday life, we picture what it is to be a kid in the West Bank today living uh, in war living uh, with a wall surrounding you, with checkpoints, with colonies. I mean, it's very different childhood from uh, people from the West or from other countries, you know. What did you want the world to see, in addition to what you've mentioned already, from the point of view of a kid? Because, I mean, it's very difficult. Whatever you do as an adult, I think you're affected of what, what happened to you during your childhood, you know. And people talk about peace, people talk about a lot of stuff when we're talking about Palestine or Israel. And I'm asking myself, I mean, how peace is possible if uh, from childhood you don't have any more dreams, you don't have any more hope. So I think it's, it's a very bad situation for uh, both countries, and, uh, but especially for Palestinian kids who don't have the right to be children because their children is like stolen away from them because they, they live like uh, adults and they're very politicized from their very early age. So, you know, I wanted to show that, but without being like too pushy on it, because in the end, the film also is a story about a father and a kid and, and the fight of the father to bring back some hope and craziness within the population of his town and, you know, and trying to save animals also, and like, because we're all humans in the end. And so a lot of messages basically in the film, I mean, I have to ask you about two scenes from the movie. One of them is the giraffe walking through the town. What did you want to relay through this? Well, I had a dream, you know. I had a dream of having a giraffe walking in the street of Naples. And, uh, but I think it's a beautiful imagery of art, like um, to have such an animal, which is very uh, strange animal, you know. Um, and also, as I told you earlier, like um, a giraffe always watches from above till down. So I think human beings are... <laughs> making a lot of problems in this part of the world, and um, I wanted to talk about the situation using the, also the point of view of a giraffe. So. The other scene is uh, Ziad's father talking to him about one of the bears in the movie. Yeah. So the, the male ate the female, so there's various uh, reading. first one is the feminine condition of the Arab woman uh, in Palestine, or in the Arab world in general. It's being eaten by the man. They don't have the rights they deserve to have. They're... And the second metaphor was obviously Palestinian being eaten also by uh, occupation. So there were like various degrees. You know, this film is a, can seem like a family film because you have a, a story with a giraffe and a kid and stuff. But there, there are a lot of degrees of reading. So I intended to do that. What kind of reaction you got from both sides, the Palestinian and the Israeli? It depends on what was happening in the news, you know. Like uh, at some point, like the movie was really well received everywhere. I mean, in Palestine and uh, in Israel, there was one screening, I think, and it was well received as well. But, you know, it was released in France, for instance, just before the war on Gaza in July uh, 2014. So, like, some of the people were harsh about some scenes, uh, especially with the um, settlers. You will see there was a very harsh scene with a settler at some point of the film. And, and after the war, the, the scene seems very soft. But uh, that's the difficulty about doing a film with the context of Palestinian-Israeli conflict because, you know, it's always changing. Tensions are rising and going down. And me, as an artist, I'm just trying to tell a story. Like, I'm not... Uh, propaganda uh, movie maker you know so um, that's why I try to, to show what the kids were seeing you know like nothing more nothing less that's Rani Masala director of the award-winning production Girafada talking to UN radios Riem Abaza
Hello listener, join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. South African and international companies who are legends of empowerment will be honored at the 15th annual Oliver Empowerment Awards on the 14th of April at Empress Palace in Johannesburg. This is a special year for the awards and it only seems right that this time is taken to honor those organizations who have generated real impact in the transformation space. Channel Africa will be there and will bring you a live broadcast at 1900 hours Central African time of the Minister of Science and Technology Naledi Pando, guest speaker at the 15th Annual Oliver Empowerment Awards on the 14th of April. With a geared focus on making sure the younger generation is not redundant in the job market over the coming years. Join us as we promote empowerment, development and growth of our continent's youth. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. The time is now 17.45 Central African time. Remember, we come to you Monday to Friday at 17 hours Central African time. Let's get economics news now. Here's Wisani Matebula. Thanks, Asanda. The World Bank has lowered its 2016 sub-Saharan African growth forecast to 3.3% from a previous forecast of 4.4% in October, citing a plunging global commodity prices. The bank says the commodity price route, uh, particularly for oil, which fell 67% from June 2014 to December 2015, as well as weak global growth, were behind the region's poor performance. A projected uptick in economic activity next year will be driven by economic powerhouses which are South Africa, Nigeria and Angola as uh, commodities uh, prices become to become stable. And Kenya's biggest bank by assets, KCB Group, says it's opening up uh, to taking part in consolidation in the banking sector. There's been speculation in local media that KCB might be looking to buy Chase Bank which was taken over by Kenya Central Bank last Thursday. This followed a run on Chase's deposits prompted by fears over the mid-sized bank's finances. Analysts say the central bank's action could hasten consolidation in Kenya's banking market. Still in Kenya, the value of coffee sold through Kenyan auction fell 9.85 uh, to 85 million US dollars in the half year to March due to lower volumes and prices. The East African nation sold uh, coffee worth $93.2 million in the first half of 2014-2015 crop season. Kenya's coffee prices tracked those of uh, Arabica in uh, New York. Coffee exports were at one time Kenya's leading foreign exchange earner.
and shares in Sentin Bez, the Oak Bay Resources and Energy, which houses mining assets of uh, the Gupta family in South Africa, have tumbled nearly 10%. This extends Oak Bay's sharp losses on Friday after its chairperson and CEO, both Gupta family members, resigned from the company. The Guptas cited a sustained political attack for their resignations following widespread reports that they've influenced cabinet appointments in South Africa. It was confirmed late on Sunday that the family had left South Africa last week. Chief Economist at Econometrics, Aza Jamin. A company has to have access to banks in order to carry on running its business to pay and receive money because one of the corporate governance problems is that the Guptas were directors and managers of this company without them being on the board or managing uh, there would be a feeling that the susceptibility to state capture would be reduced. And to Nigeria now where the company, uh, the, the country expects its nine oil revenues to nearly double this year. This is Africa's top oil producer seeks to offset a slump in oil revenues. President Muhammadu Buhari plans a record 30.6 billion U.S. dollars budget to stimulate Africa's biggest economy, which has been hammered by a fall in oil exports. And that has made up uh, 70% of state income. Corporate income tax collection is also expected to increase in Nigeria. Let's now look at your financial indicators. The dollar is now at 14.94 to the South African rent at 10.85 against the Botswana Pula and then 9.82 the Zambian Kwacha. Looking now at European currencies, it's at 0.70 to the British pound and 0.87 against the euro. Commodities gold has gone down to 1,250. Conversely, platinum going up $971 per fine ounce. And also Brent crude oil is enjoying some uh, good running now at $42.05 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thank you, Wesani, for that update. Let's get uh, sports news now with Tabiso. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabiso Ntema with the latest sports update at this hour. Kenyan Parliament resumes sitting on Tuesday in readiness for the eventual processing of the crucial anti-doping bill tabled before MPs two weeks ago. The bill is key to component of compliance ingredient required by the World Anti-Doping Agency WADA by the 2nd of May or else the country will be banned from the Rio Olympics and other global events. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has the story. Kenya was reprieved last week after Wada Boat opted to extend the deadline from April 5th to May 2nd after it became apparent that the bill that has gone through first reading in the legislative chamber was not ready even by 5th. 
The matter has become a hot potato for various stakeholders, forcing even His Excellency President Uhuru Kenyatta to personally make his government's commitment clear. Uhuru Kenyatta has reassured Kenyans and the general sporting fraternity that the country will ultimately be ready for the next deadline that is set by the World Anti-Doping Agency that is May the 2nd. The fact of the matter is we are and will have that law which we have worked and built together with the anti-doping uh, agency. It has been accepted. It is just a question of it following. I, I, I am confident because the problem would have been if there was a lack of commitment in terms of enacting. That commitment is there also at the National Assembly. And I believe that within the next month we should have gone through all the necessary processes that uh, guide the way we make laws in Kenya. The world's top-ranked wheelchair tennis stars proved unbeatable in the SA Open finals at Ellis Park Tennis Stadium in Johannesburg at the weekend. Frenchman Stephanie Houdet, Jiske Griffon from the Netherlands, and Australian quad Dale and Alcott all marched to victory in the Super Series event on Saturday. Lali Standa was there and filed this report. The Frenchman, who also won both events in 2014, reeled in a third SA Open title with a straight sets victory, 6-2-6 love, over compatriot Nicholas Pfeiffer at Ellis Park Tennis Stadium on Saturday. The 45-year-old Frenchman was full of praise for Wheelchair Tennis South Africa and its sponsor, Airports Company South Africa, saying the development program in South Africa is the best in the world and the two events they host are top quality. Yeah, the, the, the team we are working with is just uh, great. I said to Olger and uh, I tweet that I think South Africa is probably world number one and an example for wheelchair tennis with what we do with the 550 players you're taking care and. Um, the coverage is uh, amazing. Uh, we feel like uh, players, tennis players. Lali Stander, ESA Open Ellis Park Tennis Stadium, Johannesburg. The General Secretary of Nigeria Football Federation, Dr. Mohamed Sanusi, has called on the Super Falcons to go all out and dismiss the Teranga Lioness of Senegal from the race for this year Africa Cup of Nations taking place in Cameroon. On Friday, both teams played to a one-all draw at Stade Demba Juop. In the Senegalese capital, with Nigeria the reigning continental champions scoring first through Chioma Wugu before the host equalized in the second half. The Teranga Lionesses delegation flew with the Super Falcons back to Nigeria on Saturday afternoon and will have an official training session at the Abuja National Stadium on Monday night. Kenya's Sevens rugby team will remain at position 8 in the IRB Rugby Sevens standings with 63 points, three legs to the end of the season. The East Africans garnered 10 more points in Hong Kong on Sunday, having managed to reach the main cup quarters where they lost by 10 points to 12 to Fiji and then by 33 points to 0 to England in the plate category. In the plate semis, Kenya lost once more and this time to Argentina by 14 points to 35. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has the story. Kenya 7's head coach Benjamin Ayimba is under no illusion on the big task ahead of his team with three legs of the World Rugby 7 Series remaining and the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro this August. The inconsistency form in their attack is something that cost them against France and Argentina in the pool and plate semis respectively. The anomalies will need to be reduced to bare minimum by the end of the week when the teams meet again this time round for the maiden Singapore sevens in Singapore. Fiji retained the Hong Kong sevens main cup. 
In Singapore, Kenya will be in Pool C alongside fellow African side South Africa, Scotland and Russia and the leg will be staged on April 16th and 17th. That's all sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Thanks to Tabiso there for our sports update. Let's recap our stories now from this hour. Countdown continues in South Sudan for the eagerly awaited return of rebel leader Rik Macha. Doctors Without Borders kickstarts a large vaccination campaign against cholera in Zambia. And that's how we wrap up Africa Digest this hour from myself, Asanda Matsaunyane, producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you so much for tuning in. For comments on our show, you can send us an email. Info at channelafrica.co.za is our address. Or you can send an SMS to plus 27796 957930. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour, here is a song titled Let There Be Light by Lyra. Do you realize nothing can ever be right until we choose to make it right? We can be the reason why we can keep a hope alive. We can be the right ones, the right ones for the task. We've been the missing part. So illuminate your light Starting with your own smile You can be the spark You can start the fire Stop hiding in the dark Don't be overcome You have the right to choose your vibe Step into the light You can be the light Never hide your mind Let it shine bright Feel the joy inside You can be the light Oh, let it shine bright That feeling in your heart You can be the light
Joy inside. 